0: Good morning. At least it's a good morning for everyone that's not a Duke fan. I would like to thank you for all of the texts and prayers and condolences. It's been a rough 12 hours. We'll make it. I'll get through it. No, it's great to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. With The people of God. Amen. The Lord inhabits the praise of his people. That's what scripture teaches us. Jesus also says that we're two or three gather in his name, he's there with him because God's always with us. But when we gather together, when we worship together, when we testify, when we proclaim truth to one another as we're singing it, God does something different. He's there in a special way. That's what we're experiencing every time we gather, and I love it. John chapter 13 is where we're going to be. We're picking up right where we left off last week. You might remember that we're walking through John 13. We're not really in a series right now, but as we prepare for Easter, Walking through the story of the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal with his disciples. I'm really excited about this text today because we're talking about Judas and his betrayal. And I think Judas is one of the most interesting characters in the Bible. So, John chapter 13, we're going to start reading in verse 18. It says this This is Jesus talking. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this. This is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. No one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you. For the privilege of gathering with your people we thank you for your presence we ask that your name would be the only one glorified or remembered today we love you amen have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you're using the same words but you realize halfway through you're talking about totally different things let me rephrase the question how many of you are married i know that was a cheap shot um It happens to everybody. Maybe you've been in that moment, like that horrifying moment when you get a text and you don't know whether it's sarcasm or whether it's a joke or whether it's serious. Maybe somebody put a dot, dot, dot where a dot, dot, dot doesn't go and it changes the whole thing, right? You're like, I know what these words mean, but I don't know what they mean when they say these words, right? A lot of things besides just the literal definition of a phrase shape the meaning of what we're saying it can be where we come from. When I went to college, I grew up in North Carolina, I went to college in Indiana, and I spent the first 10 years of my adult life in the North. I got made fun of a lot for all of the colloquialisms that we southerners have no idea that we say. For instance, the first time I went to the grocery store, I said, hey, do you guys want me to, uh, you guys want me to get a buggy? And they looked at me and said, you mean the thing Amish people ride in? And I said, no, the thing you put your groceries in. They said, oh, a cart. I said, the thing Amish people ride in? Like. <laughs> A lot of things shape the definition of words, the experience you're having that day, the tone of voice, your experience with the topic. You know, two couples could attend the same concert. They could watch the same performance, hear the same songs with the same emotion and harmonies and transitions and everything, and then they could tell you about it. And one of them could have a horrible experience because they were on an awful second date. And one of them could have an incredible experience because they just got engaged. And they could be describing the same things, but really be meaning very different things in what they're saying because of their experience with the thing that they're talking about. Now, here's why I bring that up Judas doesn't seem to act like he got caught. Have you ever been caught doing something? My son has a tell every time he gets caught. He gets this little smirk that I hope never goes away. I hope he is 18 and he t- still smirks when he's stretching the truth. That would really help me out through the teenage years. Judas doesn't act like he got caught. Jesus looks right at him. He tells the whole room, someone is going to betray me. Everyone's muttering about betrayal. Everyone's talking about it. Judas lo- or Jesus looks at Judas in the eyes, hands him food, and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. But John doesn't give us any inclination that Judas got nervous. He doesn't give us, imagine this, imagine that you were going to, let's say, that you were going to take $1,000 to sell me to be killed. Just imagination. Just pretend. Um, Imagine that you came to church on Sunday morning and right after church you were going to do it and everybody's talking about how someone's going to betray CJ. And then imagine in the middle of the sermon I looked at you and said, just go ahead and get it over with. How would you respond? You think you'd get defensive? You think you'd say, what, me? I'm not doing anything, come on. I'm not, that's not, you must be thinking of someone else. You must have me confused with somebody else. Or you might think, oh my gosh, my plan's ruined. There's no way I'm going to go through with it now. He knows. It's not going to work. John doesn't give us any inclination that Judas feels like he got caught. Maybe Jesus and Judas were using the same words, but they were meaning completely different things. Now, here's what we know. When we're looking at scripture, any scholarship, there are things that scholars tend to agree on, and then there's a spectrum of things that there are different points of view, different strains or trains of thought and what we know what scholars agree on about judas is that he was a jewish a young jewish man he was probably a teenager he's probably 17 or 18 something like that that's probably the equivalent of 25 something like that in our world young guy early in his career that's the kind of influence he would have and he was in He was a Second Temple Jew. Second Temple Judaism is a theological and historical designation. It tells us about the time in which he was living, which all Jews, when Jesus was on earth, were Second Temple Jews. And it also tells us part of their perspective about the world. What every Jewish person, nearly every Jewish person, believed at this time in history was that God was going to send a Messiah. They believed God was going to send a Messiah, or a Savior, or a Christ, someone to come and rescue the people of Israel. But nearly every Jewish person alive at this time thought that that Messiah was a political and military leader. They believed that God was going to send someone to set them free from Roman rule for the last few hundred years the israelites had been oppressed and conquered by one nation after another the assyrians and the babylonians and the persians and the greeks and now the romans and these were people that had prophecy in history in which god said i will raise you up i will make you a great nation all nations will be blessed through you and they could remember stories passed down from generations of david and solomon and the glory of israel when their was the most powerful nation on earth. And in their mind, their God got glory when his people were elevated. So they believed that God was going to send a Messiah who was going to align them with the law, teach them the truth, and then organize a militia and overthrow the Romans. And it was going to be empowered by God. In fact, over the last few hundred years before this had happened, there had been multiple revolts that had been squashed by the Romans that people had said, maybe that's the Messiah, maybe that's the Messiah. But each time the Romans had squashed the rebellion and and they'd proven that the Messiah hadn't come yet. So everybody, Judas and all of the other disciples, believe that when God sends a Messiah that that Messiah is gonna pick up a sword. In fact, we know from later on in the story that all of the disciples were still wrestling with this idea. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they still didn't fully understand what Jesus came to do. That's why if we were to keep reading a few chapters, you would see that when Jesus gets arrested, one of his disciples takes out a sword and cuts off someone's ear. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way. Because this was the common way of thinking. And Jesus was slowly teaching them that he came to bring a different kingdom, that he came to teach a different way. But that was unraveling their entire worldview. So that's what we know about Judas. We know that his perspective was, Jesus is a Messiah, and a Messiah is supposed to set us free. Now, what we also know is that at this time in history, there was a group of people known as the Zealots. Zealots was was a sect of Jewish people. They were a political and religious group or community. And we might think of them kind of like the Proud Boys or Antifa. They were extremely like passionate about their beliefs, and they weren't overtly violent, but violence kind of went where they went. Violence was right under the surface in their thinking. The zealots were people who believed not just that God was going to set the people of Israel free from the Romans, but that it was an offense to the name of God that the Romans would rule the people of Israel. They believed it was required for them to be loyal to God, for them to resist and do anything in their power To fight against the Romans. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. He's known as Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter. I know the names are confusing, but it's a different Simon. One of Jesus' disciples was already one of these passionate, committed revolutionaries who might not be openly violent, but had violent tendencies. Now, here is where scholars disagree. There's a spectrum of scholarship about Judas. We know that he was a young Jewish man, and we know that he was familiar with zealots, there was also a group of people in this time in history called the Sakari. Sakari were early Hebrew assassins. They were before ninjas, they were before hitmen, they were before all of it. One of, we really, really need Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe to make a movie about the Sicarii. It would be incredible. In fact, the movie Sicario came out. I haven't seen it. I don't know whether it's good or not. But that movie, that word Sicario in Spanish means hitman, and it comes from the Hebrew word Sicarii, which means assassin. Sicarii were called daggermen because they walked around with coats on and with daggers under their coat because they were zealots who were radicalized and they were ready to kill a Roman any time they saw him. They were some of the earliest assassins in history. Now, there are some scholars, not all scholars, but there are some scholars that hear Judas, and they hear Judas Iscariot, and they think that that name Iscariot was a designation of his affiliation with the Sicarii. Like I said, not all scholars believe that. Some think it was just his family name. Some think that it was just the region that he came from. But there's at least some evidence to believe that Judas was a radicalized, violent person who was committed to God, was zealous for his ways, even to the point that he would commit violence in the name of his God. Now that changes the way we look at Judas, doesn't it? Because everybody, everybody in this era, everybody who believed Jesus was the Messiah would have been waiting for the day when Jesus was going to start the revolution. And somebody like Judas, somebody who was radical in his commitment, he might have been getting impatient. we tend to typecast Judas as this conniving, backbiting, sort of manipulative person, and how could Jesus ever trust him? How could he ever be part of the disciples? But I think there's more to it than that, because maybe Judas wasn't just selling out his best friend for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe Judas thought, there is no way the Messiah would let the Romans arrest him. Maybe Judas thought, there is no way... That the Messiah would let, them, would let them put him in jail. There's no way the Messiah would be executed. This will start the revolution. This will force Jesus' hands. And what if Judas had this plan? This plan to start the revolution that he so desperately believed in. And he was sitting at the table, listening to all of the disciples whisper about who was going to betray Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him and said, what you're going to do, do quickly. Maybe Jesus was talking about betrayal, but Judas heard affirmation. Maybe Judas heard, I was right. It's time to start the revolution. Now, scholars disagree on this. We will never fully know what was going on in Judas' mind. But here's what we do know. No matter what you believe about Judas, we know that it is completely possible for someone to spend years following Jesus and still so completely miss who Jesus is that you wind up betraying him. And it's possible that we could spend years following Jesus and be so far away from who he is that we don't even realize that he's not who we thought he was. You know, you might be familiar with the fact that after Judas saw what happened to Jesus, that he gave the money back and committed suicide because the outcome that happened isn't the outcome he was hoping for. There's a question that Judas forces us to ask, and it's not a comfortable question. You've probably figured that out by now. It's not a fun question to ask, but it's a question we have to ask, and it's this. Are we following who Jesus is, or are we following who we want him to be? One more time. Are we following who Jesus is, who he actually is? Are we committed to knowing the true, authentic Jesus as revealed in Scripture? Or are we forcing Jesus into the box of who we want him to be? There's some easy ways, I think, some helpful ways for us to examine that. And it really comes down to this. How comfortable am I being wrong? How comfortable, when someone challenges my opinion, when someone challenges my perspective, when someone says, I think Jesus means this, is our reaction, no, that couldn't be, or is our reaction, if that's true, then that's what I want to believe. Are we more committed to being right, or to pursuing the authentic Jesus in growth and transformation? Are we more committed to being right, or to being formed into his likeness? Are we forcing Jesus to align with our politics, with our chosen theological spectrum? Are we we forcing Jesus to align with our dating values or with our economics? Are we forcing Jesus into our own perspective? Or are we saying, this is what I think right now, but I want to know more of what Jesus said. Do we see being wrong as something that we that we hate, or do we see the opportunity to be proven wrong as the chance to become more like Jesus? Because that's a big difference. Can I tell you something? I hate being wrong. I hate being wrong. I go into a conference. This is one of my biggest struggles. I go into a conference or a sermon or a seminar with my ideas held very, very tightly, ready to prove why I'm right and the other person's wrong. (laughs) Are we more concerned with being right, or are we more concerned with being like Jesus? Are we following who we want him to be, or are we following who he actually is? I think it comes down to one simple thing. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Here's why it comes down to that. If you trust Jesus, you can be wrong about him, but you will be patient with him for him to prove himself right. I want you to imagine how this story would be different. Maybe Judas is a revolutionary. Maybe Judas is violent. But if Judas would have just said, it's taken a long time for the revolution to come, but I trust Jesus. It's not my timeline. I wish it would happen faster, but I trust Jesus. You think maybe he would have waited long enough to see the truth? You think maybe he would have waited? You think Jesus would have been patient with him because Judas had been wrong about Jesus for three years, but Jesus had been patient with him. All 11 of the other disciples had been wrong about Jesus over and over and over again, but he'd been patient with them. Because Jesus is patient with us when we get him wrong. He is patient and kind and loving and gentle with us when we get him wrong. And if we will trust him, then he will guide us into truth and into what is right. See, this, this is what it looks like. When, you, when you're looking at your life, Do you trust, let's say when you're looking at your sexual values, do you trust the way of Jesus and do you trust that it is better? Do you trust that if I make this sacrifice and deny myself this thing that I want, that Jesus' way will actually be proven more fulfilling and more joyful and more compelling, that Jesus will be proven better? Or do you say, this is what I wanna do right now, so I'm gonna take a scripture out of context and use it to affirm what I already want? Do you trust that the way of Jesus is actually better or do you cling to what you want to be true and affirm it with scripture? When you're looking at your finances and you see the way of generosity that's difficult and it doesn't make a lot of sense, and then you see the way of the world that is hoarding and building up and keeping for yourself, do you trust that the way of generosity, that the way of Jesus is actually better for you in the long run, and it's better for the world in the long run, or do you cling to what you already believe and what's comfortable and then take scripture out of context to affirm it? Because just like Judas, if we try hard enough, we can make scripture say whatever we want it to say if we take it out of context and attach it to what we already believe. It's possible to be so committed to what I want to be true that I don't see what is true. It's possible to be following my own conception of Jesus rather than the real Jesus. So do you trust him? Do you trust that his way is better? Do you trust that that area of tension in your life where you feel conviction and you feel like something needs to change? Do you actually trust that what Jesus is inviting you into is going to be better for you and your family and for the world? Or do you not really trust that it's going to work out in the end so you cling to your own ways and spiritualize it? This is a temptation we face continually. It's a lot easier to imagine Judas as basically Smeagol from Lord of the Rings, conniving and working in the dark, and backbiting and purely evil. It's a lot more difficult to see that Judas is a lot more like me than I thought. But Jesus is worth that realization. Now, this idea, this truth is heavy. (laughs) I can feel that. I think we all feel that. This is not a fun truth to wrestle with because none of us like being wrong and we especially hate the idea, I hate the idea of even considering that maybe my perception of Jesus is wrong. But I want to tell you two things as I close. First is that Jesus is good enough to change your mind about everything and align with him. He's actually worth it. It is worth being wrong about everything that you thought you believed to learn the truth about who Jesus is because it is that good and it is that fulfilling. And yes, Jesus came to preach a new kingdom in a new way that is counter. It's an upside down kingdom. It doesn't work the way the world works and it doesn't make sense. And there are so many times where we find ourselves clinging to our assumptions instead of trusting in the way of Jesus, but I'm telling you that it's worth it. I'm telling you that it's worth it. If you're willing to let go, to let go of that control and say, Say, Jesus, I trust your ways, he will prove himself trustworthy. He will prove himself good. He will prove that he is worth being wrong about everything to be right about him. Here's the second thing I want to tell you. Jesus loved Judas just as much as every other disciple. If you were here last week, you remember that just a few moments before this, Jesus had washed all of his disciples' feet, Judas included. Jesus, knowing what was about to happen, knowing just how far Judas was away from the truth, knowing just how much Judas didn't get it, Jesus still got down, took his shame upon himself, and washed Judas' feet. He still died just as much for Judas as for John or me or anyone else. His love for Judas was not affected by Judas' betrayal. So we have to understand that no matter what we have wrong right now, Jesus isn't looking at us with condescension. Jesus is looking at us with love and patience, inviting us into something better. Jesus washes our feet even when we have no idea who he really is. Because he loves us. His love for you is patient. Scripture teaches it is his kindness that brings us to repentance. So this is a heavy, uncomfortable truth, but the journey is a journey of patience and joy because Jesus is the one who leads us into that truth. Jesus is the one who leads us into that truth. We're going to close with a time of worship as we usually do here at the fold. But here's what I want to invite you to do as we close. Maybe you've got an area of your life that you've really been struggling with trusting Jesus in. Maybe you've got an area of your life where you've been trying to force Jesus into your way of doing things. Or you've been trying to find a way to biblically or spiritually justify what you really want to be true. If you're like me, then you've probably been thinking about that the whole time during the sermon. I usually know what it is before, <laughs> before we even get to this part. I want to invite you... To just allow the Holy Spirit to point out that thing. I want to invite you to choose to trust Jesus in that area of your life. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. I know it's uncomfortable. I know you don't want to admit that you're wrong. None of us do. But I promise it will be worth it if you're willing to let Jesus show you who he really is. And what he really has for you. Let's pray. Jesus we love you. Thank you that you are patient. And you are kind to us. Thank you that you are gentle. Thank you that you wash our feet. Even when we don't know who you are. Thank you that you. You love us. Even when we get you completely wrong. But Jesus we want to know you. And we want to know. Who you really are. Give us the passion and the courage to be committed to who you actually are, Jesus, not our perceptions of you. Let every false image of you die so that we would know who you really are and your true and authentic ways, Jesus. We love you. Amen.